0: We're standing at the corner of Wall Street and Main Street. Today we're going to talk about the 1031 exchange. I've been to alternative investment conferences lately that have turned into forums of discussion for this red hot transaction strategy. Why is that? Okay, let's start at the beginning. What is a 1031 exchange? Under section 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code, a taxpayer may defer recognition of capital gains and related federal income tax liability on the exchange of certain types of property, a process known as a 1031 exchange. To qualify for section 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code, the properties exchanged must be held for productive use in a trade or business or for investment. The properties exchanged must be of like kind or of the same nature or character even if they differ in grade or quality. To elect the 1031 recognition, a taxpayer must identify the property for exchange before closing, identify the replacement property within 45 days of closing, and acquire the replacement property within 180 days of closing. A qualified intermediary must also be used to facilitate the transaction by holding all of the profits from the sale and then dispersing those monies at the closing. Stick with me. I know it's a little complicated, just a little bit more. More than one potential replacement property can be identified as long as you satisfy one of these rules. The three property rule up to three properties regardless of their market values. The 200% rule, any number of properties, as long as the aggregate fair market value of all replacement properties does not exceed 200% of the aggregate fair market value of all of the relinquished properties as of the initial transfer date. And finally, the 95% rule, in other words, 95% 95% or all of the properties identified must be purchased or the entire exchange is invalid. What's the point of 1031 exchanges? Well, as long as the money continues to be reinvested in other real estate, the capital gains taxes can be deferred. Rental income on real estate investments will continue to be taxed as net income is realized. And then finally, finally, many credited investors we'll consider a Delaware Statutory Trust, something we like to call in the industry a DST. And let's get me off the hook here and conclude the 101 course. And it's a great time to introduce our guest for today's podcast. Jeff Flaherty is the National Accounts Director with ExchangeRite. Jeff, thanks for
1: joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh,
0: it's our pleasure, Jeff. And now that I've butchered the 101 course for 1031 exchanges in the interest of time, and I can, I, I'm my ears are acutely listening to hear the sound of you groaning as I gloss over what are probably <laughs> some pretty significant items. Um, could you tell us about the DST?
1: Uh, certainly. So uh, I think, you know, when, when we're talking about a Delaware statutory trust, and we're talking about it, you know, number one is because. Um, the IRS uh, back in 2004 issued a what's called a revenue ruling. Um, this is stronger than say, a revenue procedure and it was over this structure so that it could tell you and me and any taxpayer contemplating doing an exchange, wait a minute, I have another option uh, for something that is like kind. So just as you were describing in the 101, what is like kind? What isn't like kind? A a big question we should ask is, is a Delaware statutory trust like kind? Does it qualify under section 1031 of the exchange code? And You don't need someone like me telling you that who's creating DSDs. You need the IRS doing that. And so that's where you can look at revenue ruling 2004-86. You or your tax advisor can look at that and say, well, Uh, a DST according to this revenue ruling, if it follows this ruling is going to be like kind for federal income tax purposes. And then, you know, then you want to look at the DST that you might be uh, considering as an option for your exchange and say, well, has this DST been structured according to the revenue ruling? So I know it's properly structured and these types of offerings will have things like, third-party tax opinions from reputable tax law firms uh, writing a should-level opinion on that DST so that you as a taxpayer can say, okay, I I know I have an option that's like kind, and now I know this particular DST is structured according to that revenue ruling, and of course, you're going to have your CPA and your other advisors look at that, Uh, so you have many sets of eyes, so you know you're you're making a good choice. you got a right structure. So Delaware statutory trust, what do you need to know? One, it's like, it works for 1031 exchanges. Number two, it is a multiple owner structure. So you're not going to be the sole owner of a DST. Um, there's going to be multiple owners, several investors in it. It's more like a pooled investment. This is incredibly helpful um, to be able to, to gather more investors together so that in that DST, you can have larger assets or more assets. Uh, one of the unique things about a Delaware statutory trust, potentially you could have up to 2,000 investors. You're never going to have that many people really invest in a DST um, before it's filled up. But you can have that many, which brought the minimums way down on programs like these um, and also allowed sponsors like Exchange, Right either to put much larger assets in them Um, or multiple assets in them um, so that taxpayers, investors going into DSTs um, can achieve a much higher level of diversification than they could ever before in other programs structured like this um, or that they could possibly do on their own. So that would be a, a second thing to know about DSTs.
0: Right. I, I know that, um, you know, one of the things that we hear commonly is that investors who have um, investment properties, very often they're tired of the so-called three T's, uh, tenants, trash and toilets, and they like to transition from direct ownership over uh, these investment properties to a more passive ownership structure. And so to elect to go into a DST, gives them the ability to do a like-kind exchange, but into a trust that will be perhaps institutionally managed. And, and as you said, have a great number of participants resulting in in maybe a larger scale of assets that they'd be invested into. Uh, so I would imagine that's, that's a pretty accurate uh, description as well.
1: Yeah, that's, that's accurate. Um, and that, you know, I could go on and on about uh, DST structure. So the ability to achieve more diversification. And then of course, exactly what you're saying, um, DSTs and their predecessor, the tenant in common structure, um, were all designed to be passive investment vehicles. So it's it's really ideal uh, for that person that that wants to exit their investment, their highly appreciated investment property. They don't wanna be a landlord anymore. Um, They certainly don't wanna pay taxes. Um, So this really gives them a way to kind of exit their active real estate defer the taxes um, in a passive way. And then just like you were saying, Doug, in a far more institutional quality level. Um, So you have sponsors like Exchange, right? We manage 5 billion in that lease. That's what we specialize in. You have other companies like Inland and others out there that are really good quality institutional sponsors that are creating DST programs that are invested in essential properties like, necessity retail and healthcare like we do, to apartments, to self-storage, to industrial. And the wonderful thing is, is as you look across this vast array of opportunities out there, um, the minimum is all around, you know, twenty five dollars to $100,000. Typical exchange size for somebody is 300000 to four hundred. They can achieve a really high level of diversification. They can really uh, begin to um, pick uh, among the available DSTs out there to construct uh, an investment as it were portfolio that best suits their needs and their risk tolerance and profile. So they get to work with companies, Doug, like your company to, you know, talk about their risk tolerances and then look into this DST space and and construct something that really suits them well for their goals, you know, both now and long-term. DSTs are are a great um, investment vehicle to defer taxes and as we like to say in our in our industry, swap till you drop. Um, so maybe we could spend some time talking about kind of an estate planning. Um, but yes, passive investment on DST is very helpful for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we can move on to sort of the applications and, and the novelty of, of 1031 exchanges for sure. But first and foremost, I think we're, we're being very calm and talking about this when it is just an absolute uh, tidal wave of activity Mm. the likes of which I'm not sure I've ever really seen in the alternative investment universe, not just in the size, scale and, and prolific nature of these DSTs coming to market, but just the relentless demand. How do we explain the phenomenon that these have really just taken front and center in the alternative investment landscape And it just seems that the demand for these transactions
1: is insatiable. Well, you know, from my perspective, you know, I've been watching this industry since it started. And it started in 2002. I started my career in 2001. Um, And I say it started in 2002 because that was a tenant in common. So this concept of having this kind of passive way to exit your active real estate has been around since 2002. That's that's a relatively new industry, even though here we are in 2022. It's still relatively new, um, in a sense. And so that, as the knowledge began to grow from 2002 upwards towards today, um, that's been a help. You know, more and more people are learning about DSTs. You know, at first it was a tenant in common, and then you know to DSTs are, are the structure uh, of these days. So it's, it's become more widely known. The absolute crazy valuations that we've been all been experiencing in all asset classes, really, um, for the last several years, you know, especially over the last several years, especially since quantitative easing really kicked in. You had free money values skyrocketed, including on real estate, whether it was a rent, house, land, whatever, everything's really expensive. And then you have the demographic of well, who are the biggest holders of private real estate in the United States? And that's typically the individual. It's it's largely in the hands of the boomers, uh, that retiring or retired generation. And they're more and more finding out that there is actually a solution out there, a real passive one, to defer their tax and leave wealth to heirs. Um, this has resulted in... An amount of demand that's unprecedented to our industry. Um, Before the great financial crisis, this industry hit a peak of collecting about 3.6 billion from investors in the old tenant and common structure. Um, Last year, it it almost reached 8 billion. Um, And it's investors from every walk of life, from those who are, you know, getting out of their rent houses in the Bronx, um, uh, to very large family office getting out of their you know big family office, 30, 40, 50, $60 million property and deferring taxes and building institutional DST placements to create passive income and have an estate planning move to move that wealth to heirs. Um, I don't see any slowing down other than what's going on in the market cycle right now you know, you know, cooling values and maybe slowing transactions down. But we're, Doug, we're not going to come, we're not going to slow down from a $3.6 billion watermark. We're slowing down from what's a trajectory this year of over 10 billion uh, seems to be coming at uh, DSTs this year.
0: Right. And and it's funny because, you know, even that number, as big as it, it sounds, you know, in context, you think about the trillions of dollars that are that are likely on the other side of this in investment properties and real estate across the country. And as that generation starts to transition from active to passive, that moving through such a small vessel, even $10 billion doesn't sound like nearly enough and probably gets to the, the reason why these are so popular. And And it kind of brings me to my next point, because, you know, let's look at this from the Wall Street side of things, not the Main Street side of things, and and think about how advisors and broker-dealers, you know, when you've got these programs sort of coming rapid fire, and by the time they're actually ready uh, to hit the market, by the time the PPM, the private placement memorandum, is issued, many of these programs are already fully subscribed how should advisors and how should uh, broker-dealers, RIAs, think about due diligence of these programs when the turnaround time
1: is so abrupt? Yeah, when, when you're in super, super high demand markets like this, it's really important for the advisor and the advisor's broker-dealer firm um, to really build solid, open, often communicating relationships with the sponsors they're going to work for so from a due diligence standpoint, one, one thing you could do if you're not already in this space or if you're thinking about, hey, look, we we need to offer this solution to our clients as well, is you, you start your due diligence by selecting, you know, the kind of sponsors you're going to work with. You know, you, you certainly you're going to look at the whole universe of sponsors out there and then decide how much you want to be in the business, um, because if, if you want to really provide some quality solutions, you're going to have to have more than one sponsor. Um, you might have one you really like and you've had a great experience with them in the past. But if you look at really serving the investor need, you're probably going to have it to have at least three. Um, and if you're going to want to be somewhat really active, you're going to probably have to have five uh, sponsors that you're working with because their products are moving quick. So go ahead and, and make your sponsor selection. Do your due diligence on those issuers, those sponsors, if you don't know them already. You know, all of these sponsors or should all of them uh, have third party due diligence reports on on themselves, audited financials, things you can do as an advisor, as a broker dealer, to diligence the sponsor and say, yep, this is somebody we wanna work with. Then you start diligencing the deal. So when it comes into this Doug, when it comes into like, all right, we got our sponsor selections, certainly open to new people. We'll keep our eyes open, but we, we've got our, our shelf full and we know we can deliver equity here uh, to meet demand or need or desire or growth. Um, then it's a matter of diligencing the deals. I don't know how you can really do adequate due diligence unless as a broker dealer, you're committed to the space and you dedicate somebody to due diligence because they could literally be going through you know, four or five or six or seven deals at a time. Um, from an investor perspective, that's what I want uh, in, a, in a financial advisor and a broker dealer is that, that they did put a team together. They're in this space. It's not an accommodation from time to time and getting a haphazard look. They're, they're really looking at it. They're paying attention to it. They're diligencing it. Um, and they're able to do that efficiently because they've created systems and processes in their broker dealer. To make that happen um i understand some broker dealers have committee meetings and so the last thought on this is this is why it's really important that the broker dealer and the advisor have a good relationship with the sponsors we have the ability um, to hold equity we control it um, and and the more we know and the more we understand about the exchange and the exchange need the more we can pre-plan together uh, to make to make the experience the best for the investor, for the broker dealer, the advisor, and the sponsor.
0: Absolutely, and and I think that's sort of the tack that that we've adopted as well in terms of how are you supposed to you know get your arms around these fast moving programs and you know with uh, with the clock ticking, do the work you need to do to feel good about. You know, verifying and 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 ratifying these investments for sale on your platform, and um, you know, if you really drill down on the sponsors and the sponsors kind of stay within their wheelhouse, at least you kind of get a little further down the road, you know, as a starting point than having to learn about the sponsor and and their background before even going into the offerings. So it, it's certainly helpful when. You, you keep things somewhat consistent and I'll, I will credit Exchange Right knowing exactly uh, what you're looking to do with your business model. So uh, now that you've done over 50 of your net lease portfolios and we can look back and see that just about all of them are remarkably similar, takes a lot of the guesswork out and, and lets us start the due diligence process you know, a lot further down the road. But now looking down Main Street and thinking about this from the investor's perspective, in a lot of cases, they've owned these properties for decades, uh, or maybe they've been you know, um, been handed them down uh, from the previous generation, and now they're looking to exchange out of them, and we give them 45 days to make a decision on what to invest in, and, and all that they have to choose from if they wanted to make this transition in the DST space is whatever handful of programs happen to be available during that very small window. That doesn't seem fair. I, I, I guess I understand or, or I accept why it's done this way. But what should investors up against the clock be looking for when they're reviewing DSTs and, and what common mistakes might they want to avoid?
1: Well, you know, to paint a, you know, maybe a little encouragement here is that you know if you find yourself in that situation, And it's scramble or pay tax. But the last thing you want to do is got to look out on Main Street because there's so much work and diligence that you're just not going to have it in your hands. Like you're not going to have a property condition report in time, you know, if you're down to the wire. But with a Delaware statutory trust, you actually do. Most sponsors like Exchange Right, top sponsors um have already purchased the real estate all the diligence has been done and that's usually easily accessible to the investor um, through a password protected website and you can go read the appraisals and the property condition reports and the environmentals so what i i do want to add to that is hey there's a lot of diligence that's been done in these dsds so you get to make a much more informed decision than if you just wanted to go out and you know beat main street and find something two weeks, but you're gonna be making some blind decisions. You'll make less blind decisions because there's more diligence available for you to review, including a full PPM, um, other sets of eyes that have scoured the deal, like third party due diligence reports that your advisor's firm has reviewed and looked at. Um, So there's a lot of information out there and, and these are sponsors, you know, you, Doug, you mentioned, hey, you, know, you look at Exchange Right; they've been doing the same thing for a decade over and over and over again. So there's not gonna be a lot of surprises there, but you'll find that remarkably kind of true in other places. You might find, you know, some sponsors do different kinds of things, but it's not the first time they've done an apartment or it's not the first time they've done to sell storage. You know, these are companies that have been around 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, Um and, and none of that information is hidden. You get this all on this giant private placement memorandum and everything's disclosed. Um, it's a lot of work, you know, you're down to the wire, but you know, you're down to a big tax bill um, and you've got all this diligence on your fingertips to see what's out there, what's available. And maybe you're spending 10 hours a day reading <laughs> some through admitting how much diligence you want to do. And, and last thought, Doug, What would what would I be careful about or pitfalls of? Don't chase yield. Um, There's not much yield to chase right now in the marketplace right now, but still, and and we're going to be the higher yield. And I'm saying that be careful not to chase yield. Um, So that's a good point. And you know
0: that that will bury the lead there because there's a question I wanted to ask towards the end of this conversation. But you know I'd be remiss to not touch on the controversy in the space um, that that occurred and got very loud a couple of years ago, when President Biden threatened to do away with the 1031 exchange. I mean, this sounds like a great tool for you know, really everyone across every walk of life in the United States to, to continue investing in real property you know, without being hindered by the, you know, the, the taxable events that, that successful investing would create. Why was he opposed to it? And, and is that still on the table?
1: Yeah, they, you know, as we like to say, um, 1031's kind of always been on the chopping block, you know, as many of us know, and maybe if you don't know, but 1031's been in our tax code since 1921, um, almost since the inception of our tax code. So it's been challenged a lot over the years with what you see, you know, coming out of like the Biden administration or uh, previous. Um, democratic administrations is it comes up as like a pay for, you know, they've got spending they want to do and they see all this tax deferral happening and they go and score it and they put billions of dollars on it and say, this will pay for that. And what they consistently don't do that, that's what comes up first. That's the, that's the headline. And, you know, we need this is a pay for, and this is a tax break for the rich. Um, This is a loophole in our tax code. And it's none of those things. Um, That's the politics. When, when it really comes down to it, it has so many giant uh, impacts on our economy, probably be the absolute worst thing we could do right now. If you could think of us doing worse things um, that have already been done, this would exasperate the problem even more. Um, And so, I don't think it's going to happen like a limitation or a repeal, but it's very real. Um, Everybody needs to be letting their representatives know that, you know, 10-30-month exchange should be preserved. There's macro and microeconomic studies published by Ernst & Young, Ling and Petrova. They've been updated. um, The whole real estate industry is very active right now and has been active in these recent announcements from the Biden administration. Um, Even in our little part of the 1031 world, um, we've been very active. Federation of Exchange Accommodators, that's the National Trade Organization for Qualified Intermediaries, the Real Estate Roundtable. Um, On and on I go. Many big, big stakeholders and big lobby groups, the National Association of Realtors, have been active and making their voice heard on the street saying, no, this is, this is not going to help. It's going to kill job. It's going to slow velocity. So, you know, it's going to slow growth and we don't need that right now. We, we need real estate to be able to trade hands, even while properties are dropping in value. Um, we don't want to do anything to cog up the wheel. And what, what has happened in past times, last thought, Doug is, they were serious about that once upon a and it, it was real serious, and nobody was talking about uh, personal property exchanges. Those got repealed, but we were out there fighting real property exchanges, and that got preserved, so we have to fight. Um, but I, I do believe cooler minds will prevail uh, on both sides of the aisle, because there's a support on both sides.
0: Right. You know, actually, it was kind of surprising to see that um, in the crosshairs uh, during the last um, uh, election cycle, because it, it really does seem like a, a transaction strategy that's, you know, that, that, that's built with the right intentions and, um, and deployed, you know, in, in, a, in a fair and reasonable way. It's, it, you don't see this. This may, you know, I'm editorializing here, of course, but in the way that we see it, particularly in um, the alternative investment universe as that pertains to the financial services industry, it doesn't seem abusive. In fact, it it seems like something that really does help investors make better decisions, uh, improve the quality of of the assets under their ownership, and and certainly improve the quality of the management of those assets, going from uh, active to passive and entrusting institutions with of dollars in in assets under advisement and experience uh, in, in taking over and um, and so I was I was kind of surprised to see it you know as a, as a bargaining chip and and in the crosshairs of that administration but that's just my personal opinion really not relevant for the sake of this conversation but I do appreciate you helping us understand why uh, maybe they were you know honing in on that and and, and obviously when you look at kind of the balance sheet of America, start to realize that anywhere they, they think they can pull additional funds, they're mm-hmm. you know, pretty desperate to do so these days. And, and you know, I, I did want to now come back to something you mentioned in terms of chasing yield. Um, when you have something that gets this big this fast and participants come into the space, new, you know, new sponsors, new types of um, asset classes, it lends to a lot of, let's say, uh, spillage, right? It's a, you can't have a locked-in industry that hits it down, um, right down the fairway every single time. You know, there's going to be some underperformance. There's going to be some mm-hmm. mistakes being made. There's going to be some people probably, you know, maybe not as well healed as others in the industry selling their wares because of the opportunity that's here. Mm-hmm. So for two reasons, one, because of the change in, in the macroeconomic environment. And two, because of the growth in this industry, should we tread lightly right now in this industry? Should we be a little bit more careful? And are there implications of rising interest rates and a slowdown in the economy that would be felt in the DST space?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> you know, any anybody that would think that what's going on macroeconomically right now. You know, somehow going to not have an impact on, on DSTs that are from the past or being offered presently doesn't really, is not really paying attention. Um, because, you know, you, you have a lot of headwinds um, it, that, w- that we're all familiar with. I, I guess what I can speak to is how we're thinking about it. Um, like when we think about inflation at exchange rate, um, we want to understand the kind of inflation that we're experiencing. You know, this is not your 1970s inflationary environment. Um, We don't have wage growth. Um, We have cost and expense growth. And so when we think about that from a real estate ownership standpoint, um, as a landlord, as an owner, um, who pays for real estate taxes and who pays for the common area maintenance and um, who pays for the insurance costs, which are all rising. Um, and, and so we like net lease for that reason, because the tenants paying those expensive in the net lease, but if you're underwriting in an apartment or, or something where those expenses are yours, it doesn't mean you, you don't buy them, but you, you do want to understand the impact of what's going on presently, uh, that may have on, on the projection of the, the cost over time, you know, are our costs, um right size to the macroeconomic we're living in and maybe even conservatively underwritten looking out into the future um the other equation to look at that is like with a net lease well i have contractual corporately guaranteed rent meaning it's a corporate obligation to pay the rent and and if that corporation happens to be an investment grade company Um, So they got a good balance sheet and maybe they're in an industry that is historically recession resilient. Well, then you'd start to look at that as a defensive. Um, Hey, that's not a bad asset to own. It's probably got its areas of risk, but that's not a bad asset to own relative to the market we're in. Um, We've been experiencing, you know, 10, 15, sometimes percent more rent growth in apartments. Uh, for the last several years. The outlook for this year and the next year looks about as equally as strong. But if you're looking at your pro forma, if you're looking at the projection for the rent grow growth, right. if it's projecting 15% a year for 10 years, well, I, I think we could all say, well, that's not going to happen. Or at least you shouldn't assume that that's going to happen. You've got to model into that some you know, some disruption, you don't, you want to model it and then look at your underwriting and see, you know, is there some cushion in here? Is there some conservatism in here for something that might be a more economically sensitive asset class than other asset classes? Um, Maybe the final thought on that is: well, if exchange rate has something that seems to be ideally suited, you know, for times like these, where is it not ideally suited? Well, you know, we're experiencing right now, you know, pretty tight squeeze on being able to deliver out good yield. Like current cash flow, our our stuff would pay 6% in days gone by. Um, We're struggling to get a five out the door. Not, but why? The important is why? Because the cost of the um, interest rate on the loan's gone up. What's really important is cap rates. Cap rates are forever. Cash flow can change. And so what we have seen, though, you know, current time in the market is we're starting to see that um, cap rate on that net lease start to move up. I'm, I'm see, I've seen a 20, like a locked in 20 basis point increase over just two portfolios recently. That's good. Cap rates are forever. Cash flow can change. You get a chance to change cash flow down the road by changing the loan, refinancing it, paying it off. Different things you can do to manage that real estate to fix what's a a short-term issue, high rates right now that you're locking in um, that you can repair down the road. The other side of it, Doug, last thought is that some people think, well, I'm going to continue to grow my rent on these short lease duration assets. um, And that's going to help me keep pace with inflation and beat the interest rates and tread water better. If you can keep raising rent, Um, that might not always be the case.
0: Right. And, you know, I think that's a really important point that you touched on that even within this industry, you can break the different asset classes and the different managers down into subsectors, almost like you could with the S&P 500 and say, you know, single tenant triple net lease as a strategy might have a risk profile um, on this end of the spectrum. Multifamily, especially, you know, with cap rates being what they are today, might be over on this part of the spectrum, and and you can kind of calibrate your investment strategy based on the different asset classes uh, to to maybe mitigate the risk, or even try to capitalize on the opportunity that this economy or other economies over the last uh, few few years, and and possibly if you want to look around the corner, you know what the future might hold would be best positioned to benefit from from what we're seeing, and you know we've seen a lot of. Different asset classes come into the space. Obviously, single tenant triple net is a great place to start. Multifamily has been very popular. We've seen self storage, we've seen, seen uh, mission critical uh, distribution facilities, uh, things of that nature. And so, you know, there's a lot of different flavors of, um, of asset classes that you can consider. So, given the backdrop of rising rates and economic uncertainty that we have right now, I'm sure along with your financial service professional, you can make some decisions to, to try to accommodate for that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, bringing this all home, I have to say one thing, you're an, an incredibly calm person. Uh, I love that steady hand. and in, in the past, I've relied on you as a resource and you've been very generous with me in, in talking about just the industry and the ins and outs and and never sort of, you know, shilling your wares, let's say. And and I can say that because exchange Rate's been so successful that you really don't have to. But um, but I want to wish you a happy belated Father's Day, Jeff. And Thank you. remind me how many kids you have?
1: Uh, seven, seven kids,
0: seven. seven. And I've got two and I can barely keep my head on straight. How do you stay so calm and level headed with seven kids?
1: um, by necessity, you know, because if, if I'm not calm, you know, uh, right. you, know you, you end up kind of setting the tone and, and I'll be honest, sometimes my tone is not so hot. Um, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> that dad can get his ire up sometimes, but, um, but yeah, if I don't set the, the tone for the home, then it's not healthy. So yes. Understood.
0: Yeah. I guess you kind of have to have that, that Zen once you get past, you know, three or four kids, if you lose all control and then, it's all about mastering yourself <laughs> at that stage, I guess.
1: So yeah, well. I, I found a lot of times uh, what oftentimes creates a really, really healthy organization, you know, the worlds we live in, a lot of crossover to really creating a healthy, healthy household.
0: Right. Absolutely. And and certainly attitude is a reflection of leadership, as they say. So I would imagine if you stay calm and and very zen, uh, maybe you'll get that uh, that response or that reflection from uh, from the the troop that you're leading. But uh, yeah, I I'd certainly want to. I guess I have to wish you a happy Father's Day, time seven, and and just commend your uh, your steady hand. But I, I really do want to to take some time here and thank you for for all of the help that you've given me and and our firm. We've had a great relationship at Kingswood and, and Benchmark with Exchange Right over the years. For more information about this asset class, this industry, and exchange right, if I'm an advisor, or if I'm a potential investor looking to do one of these deals, where would you point me? What are some resources that we could be looking for?
1: Um, well, right, right where you are. you know, and, and that's just as honest as it can be, because um, these are these DSTs are what's called a regu- Reg D, Regulation D private security. Um, so that's nice because we don't have to spend the cost for public filings. It's not so nice because it lives over in a corner in the dark and investors from the outside. You know, it's, it's not as transparent as we like them. Um, and so how do you get that transparency? You, you just simply got to work with a good group, a good group like Kingswood. Like Benchmark, you know, these they know this stuff, so they can help you. They can introduce you to it, educate you on it, um, and then help you find resources about it. Um, The only thing, the last thought on that would be just don't go Googling it because (laughs) there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet. and, And I'm all for criticisms and all looking for all the hidden corners. Let's find them all and be aware of everything. Um, but there's just some people out there talking, do not know what they're talking about. You've got to work with a a good group like Kingswood, um, like Benchmark, in order to get the accurate information.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. And that's definitely worth noting that a DST, which is really the, the program that we've spoke at length today about, is a Reg D, which is for accredited investors only. Talk to your financial services professional, uh, to learn more about this asset class in general, and if one of these transactions might be right for you. But Jeff Flaherty, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. I always learn something or a few things new uh, every time we have a discussion. And, and I just can't thank you enough for your time and your generosity with this information.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me again.
0: Excellent. Our pleasure. Thanks so much. Jeff Flaherty with Exchange Right. Take care.